Hi everyone, this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes, and today we're going to discuss Blue-White in Neon Dynasty. Uh, Blue-White is a below average archetype according to the overall win rates in the format. It wins like 54 point, 55.4% of the time on 17 lands, which is a little over 1% lower than the average for two-color decks. It's appreciably ahead of the non-black red decks, so it does better than blue, red, white, red, and green, red, but it does not do as well as the other color combinations. But I think that that's workable. I think that this is a relatively difficult archetype to navigate, and so hopefully I can help out with this. <laughs> so white is a really shallow color at common. Spirited Companion and Imperial Oath are really, really good, and all of the other white cards are notably worse. It's basically just like those two are way ahead of the pack, and then you have a bunch of interchangeable cards. Blue has a different situation. With blue, the modern age, I think, is has taken a clear spot as the best blue common. I think that that had been obscured by the ninja skew in 17 lands data collection and now that's been fixed the modern age is appreciably ahead of everything else incidentally i'd been drafting modern age ahead of all the other blue commons all along um it's always felt better to me and it also just like requires the other blue commons are good because they work well together whereas the modern age just does its own thing very consistently helps your deck do whatever it's trying to do it just works so the Modern Age is the one in a blue saga, draw, discard, draw, discard, and then you get a 2-3 flyer. Followed by the ninja trio of Network Disruptors, the 1-1 flyer that, for one that taps something when it enters the battlefield. Moon Circuit Hacker, 1 in a blue, 2-1 ninja. When it hits your opponent, draw a card, then discard a card. If you played it this turn, it just draws a card, and it does ninjutsu for a blue. And then uh, Moon Snare Specialist is the four mana, two, two mana war. Bounce any creature, Ninjutsu for three. Those six commons, the two white commons and four blue commons, and the white ones were Spirited Companion, two mana, one, two enchantment creature, or one, one enchantment creature, uh, ETB draw card, and Imperial Oath, five and a white sorcery, make three, two, two vigilance, Samurai's Scry three. Those six cards are the top tier of blue-white commons, and they are an appreciable cut ahead of all the other cards, all the other commons in blue-white. So the reason that I call those out and want to discuss this top tier is I think basically no matter what your blue-white deck is doing, well, Network Disruptor is a little bit in its own space. The ninja package can rise or fall depending on what's going on, but in general, you're going to want it. And I would say most frequently you're going to like, you're basically always going to want Moonsnare Specialist. Network Disruptor and Moonsnare Hacker you'll usually want could go a little bit differently or whatever. Where I'm ultimately getting with this is there are a bunch of different ways to draft blue-white um, in terms of different things that you can focus on. But that core that you basically always want like to take those cards when you can. There are builds where in particular network disruptor is not very important if like you don't have ninjas and stuff. But in general, those are like the premium cards. The cards that are a tier down from that, the next stuff you're looking for is mostly removal spells. 
I don't think that it matters. Like the difference between various removal spells isn't very big. You're just looking for a bunch of interaction in some combination of like ninjas kunai, wanders intervention or intercessors arrest, repel the vial, tamio's completion, disruption protocol also works in this space. Some other like reasonably good creatures like Moth Rider Patrol and Era of Enlightenment, Sky Swimmer Koi, Searchlight Companion, and Goldtail Disciple. But broadly, what's happening here is your deck is really about Imperial Oath uh, as often as possible. I mean, Imperial Oath is the best white common in general, but it is essential for blue white in a way that I don't think it's essential for other color combinations because. Blue white is basically a bunch of like low impact value tempo removal type stuff that's pretty good at sculpting your draw and answering opponents' threats and generally positioning you pretty well, but not closing and doing a lot of wheel spinning basically. And it can all kind of amount to nothing. And then Imperial Oath is a really good way to just, like, close out the game. Like, turn the corner in a control deck. Like, it's, you know, I've talked about how, like, you don't want to be a control deck and limited unless you have, like, a really good rare that you're playing to so that your deck has more power than your opponents. And Imperial Oath does a pretty solid job of kind of just, like, functioning that way and letting you get away with playing a control deck that's more built on commons. And this is actually kind of very similar to Revenous Lindworm in Kaldheim, where there were a bunch of like aggro decks and then green could just play kind of this like more mid-range type space where once you started playing Ravenous Lindworms, your opponent couldn't really kill you anymore and they would like turn the corner and end the game. And I think blue-white is kind of like in that spot where you're kind of stopping your opponents from trying to kill you and then doing this six-mana thing that gives you value across a bunch of different items. Like it scries that your next play is also going to be good, but also it can't be answered by a single removal spell and it stabilizes the board and it puts you in a really good place to like turn around and end the game. So you're... Deck by default should revolve around Imperial Oath, and Imperial Oath is uh, underdrafted in general and not as important to other white decks as it is to blue-white, such that um, a very large portion of the time that you are in blue-white, you should be able to find them. Then the fact of having Imperial Oath as the way that you're turning the corner allows you to really lean into playing a defensive game, playing a little bit more removal than I would want to in most uh, archetypes in this format than just ending the game with Imperial Oath. I've mentioned in the past, I believe on this podcast, that I think that removal in this format's not as important as it is, as it like had been in Midnight Hunt and Crimson Vow. And in general, I want to take removal spells like not very aggressively, and I don't really care how many of them I have. I feel like in general, I just kind of want to be proactive and just like play better threats than my opponent and just generally like win on card quality while our cards are just kind of mashing into each other. But uh, blue-white lets you go a different direction and just try to answer your opponent's stuff, 
be, and that is good. It's less exploitable to errors when you have answers to things. Like this past weekend, I went four and two on day two of the arena open because I drafted a green blue deck that just didn't have answers. And so I lost to some of the best rares and mythics where like when my opponent played Tameshi or Kikijiki Saga, I didn't have any way to deal with it. And that creature was able to take over the game. With blue-white, if you do load up on removal, you don't risk losing to those cards, or at least you'll have ways to potentially deal with them. And then you can take over with whatever you happen to take over with, which is Imperial Oath. <laughs> so that's what's up. I, I should address the, I guess, elephant in the room when talking about blue-white, which is the idea that it is the vehicle uh, archetype. So the thing that would lead one to believe that it's the vehicle archetype is primarily the uncommon signpost Prodigy's Prototype, um, which is one blue, white, three, four vehicle. When a vehicle attacks, when you attack with one or more vehicles, uh, make a one, one pilot that cruises if it has two more power. This card is pretty good. It's like kind of in that top tier of commons, you know, rough power level. It's like not as good as modern age, but better than the, it's, it's like the second best blue common uh, would be a way to like place it on that uh, common power level ranking according to like 17 land stats feels about right to me. It's, you know, not like the kind of uncommon that's like in a class ahead of commons, but it's solid top tier not not bombed here, but like top tier normal card. You know, basically supports itself. But like, oh, it has crew two. By the way, failed to mention. Um, it basically supports itself. Like, it's you can generally attack with it, and it makes guys, and making the guys is good. It is better if you have like a flying vehicle, so that if you don't have a good attack on the ground, you can attack with a flying vehicle, still make a creature, stuff like that. I was just playing a deck with two of these and some other vehicles. And I had a bunch of games that I kind of won by making a lot of those pilots. And that felt pretty good. It felt like I was actually doing the vehicle thing. But if you don't have Prodigy's prototype, you should not let any of the other commons and uncommons direct you to play vehicles. Like there are, you know, some other commons and uncommons that are like, have the creature type pilot that tell you that they want vehicles, none of that stuff matters. Those cards are, you know, like filler playables if you happen to be able to use them well. They're nothing that should be archetype defining. Incidentally, I mentioned the top tier commons. I've also noted kind of the like top tier commons on commons together. Behold the Unspeakable is basically just a better oath. Like I think a, a good way to think about like how that card functions and what its role is in this deck is it's like Oath. It gives you like card selection and threats and stabilizes the board when it comes down and lets you turn the corner, but it just does it all like better cost, better output. It's just a better version of Imperial Oath. That's the top uncommon. And then Imperial Oath actually performs better than the other uncommon. So it goes like Behold the Unspeakable, which is the five mana saga. <laughs> I should say this, then talk about it, but talking about it and saying it will have to suffice when I forget to do it in the better order. Three and two blue, Saga, 
First chapter, minus two power to all your opponent's guys until your next turn. Second chapter, scry two, draw two. But if you have only one card, which means if you emptied your hand card hand the previous turn, most of the time, you draw four instead. And then it flips into a flying trampler with number with a power and toughness equal to number of cards in your hand. That's the best uncommon. Imperial Oath is better than the other uncommons. Then Michikoro's Reign of Truth, which is the first two chapters, pump a creature equal to the number of artifacts and enchantments you control. Third chapter becomes a creature with power and toughness equal to the number of artifacts you control. And Banishing Slash, which is white, white, sorcery, speed, disenchant, make a TGC right if you have an artifact and enchantment. Those are ahead of Spirited Companion, which actually performs better than Circuit Mender, though... For my money, I'm probably taking Circuit Mender over Spirited Companion, then Modern Age, then Circuit Mender being three man artifact creature, two, three, ETB gain two life, leaves play draw a card. Then Modern Age, then Selfless Samurai, which is the 2 2 samurai that when a samurai attacks alone, it gets lifelink and it can sacrifice itself to give something indestructible. And then Prodigy's Prototype, which is the vehicle. It's been pointed out that uh, Slash maybe also hits tap creatures, which. Sounds true, though I don't know that I've remembered that I have the option. <laughs> so that's the top tier of commons on commons. Should come at no surprise in general. Those those cards are all pretty clearly great. I don't think any of them are like underrated or anything. Those are the things to look for, which kind of answers the question, hey, what puts you in this archetype? Well, maybe see some of those good cards and take them. And I, I do think it really goes that way where... You know, white is shallow, but its best commons are good and appreciably better than the other commons. There's a trick here where white's shallowness makes it really hard to tell when you're supposed to draft white and whether it's open. Because the real trick here is Imperial Oath is the best performing white common, but it's also criminally underrated. So... Like I have in a recent draft gotten an oath 15th pick in or whatever the, I think it's 15th in pack three, 14th or 15th, whatever the last possible pick is in pack three. And so it's just very hard to read getting past any particular white card as a strong signal about what colors people passing to you may or may not be playing. That said, if you're getting past spirited companions and imperial oaths, probably white's open. And even if it isn't, at least the person who's in white and passing to you is likely valuing the wrong cards, so you might be able to just cooperate with them. Of course, given that blue-white is one of the more controlling archetypes in the format, if you start with a powerful, slow, blue and or white card, that would be the kind of thing that would make you more inclined to move into blue-white. Also, as is true anytime I talk about an archetype that's really prioritizing removal, there is, you will generally care a little bit less about your curve than in aggressive and proactive decks uh, because your removal is going to extend the game, which is going to make the game more about attrition and less about tempo, which is going to make your efficiency of spending your mana less important. So where in red-black, I talked about how you will do reasonably well if you just take all the cheapest cards. In blue-white, it's fine to, you know, take your Tamiyo's completions and repel the vials because they are completing the role that you want. So you're basically just looking for, does this card give me the effect that I'm looking for? 
a little bit more than you're looking for. What's my curve? Like, where am I missing? How many two drops do I need kind of thing? So I mentioned that blue-white is hard to draft and that after the top tier, things get kind of wobbly and flexible. So what I'm getting at there is while I think it's generally on the controlling side and generally wants removal a little bit more than the other archetypes, there is definitely a lot of room for variation based on which of the powerful cards you have, where you may be more ninja based, you may be more like Imperial Oath control based, you may be more flyer based, you may be more artifact based, you may be more, I want a mix of artifacts and enchantments to get the control and artifact and enchantment like perk. And there are some, you know, single cards that can like alter your strategy and you can end up kind of like building around them. For example, the automaton, whose name I don't remember, two colorless, one, one, ward two. When you play an artifact, it gets a plus one, plus one counter. That's going to lean you toward really prioritizing artifacts. You're gonna want blue to be a lot more open than white when you go into that space because white's not gonna offer you a lot of artifacts. You're gonna look for like white interactive spells and like blue artifacts. And you're probably going to prefer not to play white, but you can get away with it in some blue white decks. I think the most notable card here is actually Containment Construct, which is two colors, two one artifact creature, Whenever you discard a card, you can exile it and then you can play it for the rest of the turn. And that works with lands. And blue by itself is basically the color that's good at enabling containment construct because it works well with the modern age and uh, Sky Swimmer Koi, modern age being the saga, Sky Swimmer Koi being the 3 3 flying fish that when you play an artifact, you get to loot. And then there's also the combo with Containment Construct Network Terminal that you can play in any deck. Network Terminal being the three-man artifact that taps for man of any color. You can spend one, tap it, another artifact to draw a card and discard a card. And Containment Construct can be the artifact that you're tapping there. That lets you just every turn you loot. Uh, usually that'll be you draw a card, you discard the land that you want to play that turn, and then you play that land. If you don't have land to play, you discard the spell you're going to play that turn. The reason that Containment Construct is, in my opinion, best in blue-white is, as I've already said, blue-white is a particularly controlling blue deck. You're looking to have a bunch of like removal, play a long game, whereas in blue-black, you're a little bit more pressured to be proactive to take advantage of your ninjas. In blue-red, you're more aggressive because red is just a really aggressive color in this format. And in blue-green, you're more proactive because you're less interactive because green doesn't have that much interaction. And so you're likely more about like ramping into big threats. So that leaves blue-white as the deck that can really play a bunch of one-for-ones to ride this card advantage engine to victory. So I think like if you, you know, just like start a draft with like modern age containment construct pretty early, I think looking to go into blue white and taking advantage of that containment construct is like a reasonable thing to keep an eye out for. It's not to the point where I would think of containment construct as like a blue white gold card that I'm drafting highly, but I, I think that there's a real amount of value there. And there are a bunch of just kind of similar concepts to that where they're just like, when I talk about this format being 
high synergy. What I mean is there are a bunch of little things like that that you can look for that let you get more value out of your cards than you would get out of those cards in other contexts. And so you want to just be looking for which of these like synergistic packages am I leaning into? What's my game plan? What, you know, and what's your game plan is a lot of different questions. Uh, What's your game plan is, you know, what am I doing on turn two? Like, how am I spending my mana throughout like a scripted early game? How am I reacting to different strategies that exist? And then how am I kind of taking directorship of the game to lead to a situation where the narrative that I have about how I win describes the like flow and narrative of the game such that, you know, I, I tell a story that ends with this happens, then this happens, then this happens, and then I win. And you want to make sure that the story makes sense and that there are no plot holes. And if you've avoided plot holes, then you'll usually be able to tell a story where you end up winning. This is to say, you know, just identify, am I looking for flyers? Am I trying to like end the game by attacking you with like Sky Swimmer Coys in the modern age? If I am, which creatures are going to support that plan? Like, you know, maybe I'm more likely to want some like good defensive creature to buy time on the ground, like Golden Tail Disciple, as opposed to Imperial Oath even. I mean, like Imperial Oath is more for I'm going to control the game and then turn the corner with this, whereas the flyer version is more, well, I've already been attacking you. I might not need to go that big to end the game. I might want to just have some like tempo-y, like stay, stay alive type cards so that I can win in the air. Another space where this comes up is a recent blue eye deck that I, uh, the same one that I was mentioning earlier that had the two Prodigies prototypes also had five spirited companions. And what I realized was that when I have these vehicles that are telling me to attack and I have a lot of uh, spirited companions, it's very easy for me to get into combat in a spot where my creatures are smaller than my opponent's creatures. Therefore, tricks were going to be particularly good. So I played like Suit Up and Regent's Authority and When We Were Young, which is the white three, two creatures get plus two, plus two. And if you have uh, an artifact and an enchantment, they get lifelink. And those tricks played out really well for me. Whereas if you are, you know, like that flying deck that I was talking about, the tricks are not going to play out as well for you because your creatures aren't going to get into combat very much. And so you want to be sure that you're, you know, adjusting your valuation to figure out like, which of these, you know, second tier cards are going to like line up well and make sense in your deck. One last card that I want to discuss specifically is Thundersteel Colossus. And what I want to say about this card is that blue-white can potentially have trouble ending a game because you're playing a lot of low impact, tempo-y stuff, card selection, and removal. Sometimes your opponent just like, plays big stuff you don't do much maybe and like i've had games where i just like deck myself because uh, i just didn't have enough impactful cards to beat my opponent and in that spot i believe thundersteel colossus is a totally reasonable way to play a high impact card as someone who respects and looks at uh data i checked out the stats on thundersteel colossus and as you might expect they're very bad so why, despite that, do I think Thundersteel Colossus is reasonable? And how do I think the stats might support me on that in that claim? Thundersteel Colossus has 
a substantially positive improvement when drawn in blue-white. It does not have an improvement when drawn in other color combinations. However, it still has bad stats in blue-white, and its improvement when drawn is largely because its win rate when not drawn is abysmal. Like blue-white decks that play Thundersteel Colossus and don't draw Thundersteel Colossus win something like 47% of the time. And then if they draw the Colossus, they win like a little over 50% of the time, like barely or something. So it has like a 3% improvement when drawn. It makes sense that if your deck is playing a 7-drop, you're going to do better when you draw the 7-drop. And it has nothing to do with whether that 7-drop won the game, potentially. It might just be, well, I put a 7-drop in my deck and then I played a game that was long enough that I drew my 7-drop. And because the game was long and my deck was like the sort of deck that wants a 7-drop, I won because we played a long game. So none of that is particularly encouraging for Thundersteel Colossus. However, the fact that it does so poorly when you don't draw it, to me, also indicates that it's just being played in bad decks. So the fact that it doesn't salvage them isn't telling me a lot. I think that most of the time Thundersteel Colossus is played, it's being played by weaker players and in drafts that didn't go as well, rather than because it's being played strategically and it's there for a reason and you have a plan with it. I think that if you have a good control deck that's looking for a high-impact card, it is a high-impact card that you can use in a blue-white deck. And the other stuff that I said, Thundersteel Colossus, incidentally, is a 7-mana 7-7 haste trample with crew 2 vehicle. All that stat stuff is kind of a weird digression. I I think it's a real card, specifically in blue-white, specifically when you're good at playing a long game and looking for a way to end the game, likely because you ended up a little bit short on Imperialists or whatever. That's the wordy version of just throwing that idea out there. I believe that is all of my notes that are important to touch on. So I will now throw the floor to chat in Twitch to ask questions about Blue White. Any questions you have that I haven't covered, if you haven't raised them yet, or if you have, please you know, throw them out there again so that I know that they uh, still need to be discussed. While I'm waiting for chat to think of and post any questions they haven't, as always, I want to thank my newest patrons over at patreon.com slash draftingarchetypes this week. So thank you to Adam, David, Kevin, Curtis, Canadian Leftist Memes Stash, MPE86, and what else is there? I really appreciate the support, everyone. And if you are interested in checking out why or, you know, reasons that those people might have been interested in uh, supporting the podcast and seeing what we offer and whether the benefits appeal to you, please give a quick look at the offerings on patreon.com slash drafting archetypes where you can get access to show notes, my draft logs, coaching discounts and stuff like that. Okay. Questions. Talked a lot about blue white as a controlling color, but I've also found some success with more tempo blue white strategy. It has a lot of things that add small bodies plus tempo and sometimes value, all top commons basically, plus prototype is better attacking than blocking. Also goes wide. If I had any experience with this, do I think I would do anything uh, different for it other than more ninjas? I agree with all of that, basically. Like I mentioned that once you get past the top tier cards, there's a lot more trying to like figure out how to use the other stuff, but the ninjas are the top tier of cards. And if you have the privilege of like leaning into just like 
the core ninjas of Network Disruptor, Moon Circuit Hacker, Moon Stair Specialist, and then also Spirited Companion. You know, if you get to like Spirited Companion and then maybe use a Network Disruptor to tap their blocker, attack with your companion, Moon Circuit Hacker, pick up your companion, that's living the dream. I mean, I, I mentioned that I personally played like a blue-eyed deck that had like the prototypes and leaned on combat tricks. I definitely think there is room for this. When I say that it's, you know, the a more controlling color than most in this format, I believe that this is a very proactive format where most colors are not very controlling. I do think that I emphasized the like controlling space more than you have to for sure. I think that like blue I mentioned like blue eyed skies and how that could lead to imp- prioritizing Imperial Oath a little bit lower, prioritizing ninjas higher as part of that. Um the you know, Ninja deck does still have room for and does really appreciate removal, especially uh, like the removal that can clear blockers to make your ninjas connect. And your ninjas are doing a lot of like generating value in the form of like literally just getting extra um, access to more cards so that you can win on more like one-to-one, one-for-one removal. There is still a lot of that like, you know, play a small game, but like small game meaning prioritize trading off, but like where you're trading off, like blue whites aggression is often in this format used as a method of of obtaining card advantage in the form of allowing you to connect with moon circuit hacker, allowing you to get an extra one, one off of your uh, prototype prodigy, letting you pick up a value creature and play it again. And that value that you're accumulating, then combining that with like one for one trades, you know, magnifies the impact of the like marginal value you've gained from like the plays that that aggressive stance enabled. So a lot of the time, even when blue white is like functioning proactively, it's more leveraging the proactive into like board advantage in terms of like tempo or card advantage in terms of like literally drawing an extra card or getting an extra object more than it's about like getting your opponent to zero. So that's my thoughts on blue aggression in the format or blue white aggression in the format. Next up, speaking of Thundersteel Colossus, would Reality Anchor, the one blue blue tinker, be something worth considering? If so, how many high value targets would you want in the deck? So Reality Anchor asks you to jump through a lot of hoops. Like you have to play Thundersteel Colossus. Your deck has to want to play Thundersteel Colossus. You have to have another artifact that you want to sacrifice. You have to be willing to two for one yourself to do it or have an artifact where like somehow you didn't put anything into like getting this artifact. Like maybe you have a the ninja, the thief, prosperous thief, the ninja that makes a treasure when it hits your opponent and you, you sack that treasure. But like you need to make sure that you have an artifact that you're comfortable sacrificing, have reality anchor. The artifact that you sacrificed isn't the creature that you need to crew the Thundersteel Colossus once you get the Thundersteel Colossus. You crew the Thundersteel Colossus, then you like connect with it. So you're actually investing three cards into this like seven point attack because you need to have the pilot, the artifact, and the the tinker, the the anchored reality. You're asking for a little bit more to go right than it looks like. Basically, like that has read as like, oh, this is a cool thing that you can do in this format. You can like get a four mana seven seven. 
but it's clunkier than you think it is. And the stats I'm trying to do it are really bad. All of this is to say I am not optimistic about Reality Anchor and think that I will likely play Thundersteel Colossus without Reality Anchor more than I play it with Reality Anchor. I'm not sure that I'll never try Reality Anchor, but I'm not optimistic about it and haven't tried it. Obligatory question about splashing. Love it. Sorry, I mean that I love the question, not necessarily that I love splashing. Splashing has got to be all right here, right? That was my first thought. I was like, I bet this archetype splashes really well. Let me check the data and see if the data like can support that case for me. The data didn't really support that case for me. I just like compared the win rates of like blue-white deck with a splash compared to other color combinations with a splash. And I was unimpressed by the blue-white with a splash uh, win rate. That said, it certainly structurally makes sense to me that blue-white can splash well. You have a lot of scry, a lot of uh, card selection, your uh, Era of Enlightenment and the Modern Age are both sagas that like really help set up your mana situation. I mentioned briefly that like sometimes this deck wants to play Network Terminal like to work with Containment Construct, but also the Natural Curve plays really well with Network Terminal because there are a lot of two drops that you want and then you want to get up to Imperial Oath and you want to play a bunch of other artifacts and you're playing a long game. So the card selection offered by Network Terminal is pretty strong. So it doesn't hurt you much to play Network Terminal. There are some synergies with playing the Terrarium that searches the artifact, the two-man artifact that searches for a basic, uh, just in terms of it being another artifact for your stuff that's like counting your artifacts and enchantments and, uh, you know, triggering your coys and activating your uh, terminals and everything. And then the best fixing is always, you know, seeing more cards, whether that's through card drawing or card selection or whatever. So yes, just structurally speaking, everything about this deck has to be like good at splashing. And the stats on splashing are always weird where you, you're more likely to splash when the deck isn't, the draft isn't going as well and your colors dry up and you have to find something somewhere else. You're less likely to splash if you're in the exact right lane and everyone's passing you the cards in your colors. So I, I definitely take data on splashing with a huge grain of salt in terms of like what it indicates about like how easily that can or how much it should. So how good is splashing Naomi, the uh, white black five mana four four that makes a two two uh, if you have an artifact and enchantment when it enters the battlefield or when it attacks? I think Naomi is a fine card to splash if that's the effect that you're looking for. And when you would be looking for that effect is very similar to like when you would be looking for a Thundersteel Colossus type effect. Like if what your deck needs is a way to end the game, I think Naomi is a very reasonable, like high impact card to end the game. As to whether like the objective power level of Naomi is high enough that you should go out of your way to splash it. I'm a little bit less convinced about that. But if you are good at having an artifact and an enchantment, which Blue White often is, and you have some tools to splash, like you're not just like playing all basics or something, then I think it's very reasonable to like include a Naomi just kind of like on rate. Thoughts on the guide bots, four mana artifact creature. So this is the four mana two one uncommon. When it enters the battlefield, put a plus one plus one counter on something, four mana and tap it, draw a card, cost one less to activate for each modified creature. I personally am a big fan of the guide bot. I like the guide bot disproportionately to its stats. I know that its stats are not very impressive, and I know that I take it more highly than that. And I know that the reason that I do that is because there are a lot of people 
in the world who believe that this format is very aggressive and that games end quickly. My personal experience is that this format is not especially aggressive and the games last a long time. And I believe that that is because I draft this format in a way that is particularly good at extending the games. And I suspect, but have not verified, that my personal average game length of games played in this format is considerably longer than the average game length uh, in the format of everyone collectively. Guidebot is really good if you know that games are going to go until turn nine plus and really bad if you know that games are going to end on turn six. So if my games are two, two turns longer than the average player's game, the average quality of Guidebot in my deck is much higher than for other people. All of this is to say, whether you want Guidebot is a function of how long you think the game is going to go, which is a function of whether you are more about flyers and ninjas or whether you are more about card selection and removal. This is very much in the, there are a lot of different ways to draft blue-white. So some decks are going to want it a lot and some deck, some blue-white decks are going to want it not very much. Next up, does blue-white prioritize fixing more than other archetypes? Right, so this is uh, kind of just getting back to the previous question, was asked before I answered it. I'm going to prioritize early in a draft the option to splash over cards that I consider to be replacement level. You, you want to give yourself the option and you can, you know, capitalize the op on the option pretty easily since I mentioned that a lot of the time this deck's not going to be as tempo-oriented and has a lot of card selection and splashing is easy and all that. Next up, have I found certain rares fit best in certain forms of blue-eyed builds? For example, the Blue March, Invoke Justice, Tamashi. Without pulling up a list of blue-eyed rares to talk through, although maybe I should just do that. The Blue March I have sided in in a blue-white deck. I think it was a blue-white deck. I've sided it in. The only time I ever played Blue, Mar uh, blue March, I sided in two of them, drew both of them. I think it was actually a blue-black. Uh, drew both of them and killed my opponent over two turns of exiling all their blockers. I personally am very confused by evaluating the Blue March and not very confident in statements about when or how to use it, to be honest. So Invoke Justice, and on a similar note, whatever the seven mana quad white, three return all artifacts and enchantments from your graveyard to play. Both of those cards are relatively easy to use in blue-white because of the amount of card selection and filtering you have, makes it pretty easy to prioritize finding white mana, and then uh, Sunblade Samurai, works really well with both of those cards because it finds an extra planes while putting a thing that you want to get back from your graveyard, from like put back from your graveyard into your graveyard. And then the seven mana thing also plays really, really well with the channel crab, the mana leaks when you channel it. And also there's a stifled clause on there. So I think both of those are really like play really well in blue white, specifically more so than other archetypes, just because of blue white being good at navigate like navigating your mana and uh, filling your graveyard. Tameshi, I mean Tameshi is a blue white card. Like it costs blue and white mana to play and activate, and it's super busted. Uh, I don't know that it's like particularly better in like dedicated blue white than it is in like green and blue or white splashing the other color because 
uh, the green deck is like good at getting a lot of mana for it, but I don't know that it matters all that much to me. She's just kind of amazing regardless. Those are my thoughts on those rares. Uh, I don't want to try to go through every rare, but there are questions about other specific ones I can uh, touch on those. Blue X seems to have a lot of vehicle build arounds. Do you ever prioritize vehicles if you have a couple or just take the good ones regardless? The only vehicle, the only vehicle outside of rare that has good stats is Prodigy's prototype. The other non-rare cards that explicitly call out vehicles should be ignored, which is not to say that you can never draft them, but you shouldn't let them tell you to draft vehicles. And I think that it's reasonable to go a little bit out of your way to try to put like another vehicle in your deck if you have Prodigy's prototype. And I also think that like the more spirited companions and searchlight companions and random other like one ones that are not great at attacking also to some extent moon snare specialists you have the more you might want to play cards like uh brute suit and like the dragon the three two flying vehicle those cards have bad stats and you should generally try to avoid them unless you're confident that you want them but there are blue white decks that are happy to play them but they are not because you have like hotshot mechanics and mobilizer mechs and stuff that those should be more of an afterthought there's a blue white vehicle called mindlink mech it is uh blue two for a four three flyer when you crew it with a non-legendary creature it becomes a copy of that creature the follow-up question is how that card is in draft it's quite good crew one is worlds different from other crew numbers crew three is this is very hard to use. Crew one is this is very easy to use. It's really, really easy to turn this into just like a 4-3 flyer for three. It has the downside of being a vehicle, but it has considerable upside with the copy effects. I have recently copied Prodigy's prototype, which was great because then it attacked and made two pilots. I've copied the fox that crews vehicles well, which is fun because then it can both untap you get to like untap it and give it first strike or like untap both of them or whatever. There are just a ton of different synergies you can get with crewing it with things. The The copy ability does matter even in limited, but also just the four, three flyer for three is a really big deal in limited. Yeah. I mean, it's easy to give it random keywords like lifelink and any kind of like ninja trigger. Some of the ninja triggers like double trigger because the ninja says like when you hit with a ninja and then it says when you hit with a ninja and you get both of them and stuff. It's good. And not only is it good, it is particularly good in blue white uh, more because you're more likely to have like good keywords to copy rather than because of vehicle synergies. Quick question for thoughts on shrines. My thoughts on shrines are going to be pretty similar in most archetypes. I think that the white shrine is the reason to play shrines. Uh, the white shrine is the four mana, one, three vigilance uh, that makes a one, one for one mana, your end step for each shrine that you control. I think that it is good enough by itself, unlike all the other shrines. And I think it also scales best with additional shrines. I'm basically never going to put a non-white shrine in my deck unless my deck also has a white shrine. And I'm willing to play white shrine without another shrine a significant portion of the time. And if I have a white shrine in my deck and I don't have to go out of my way for another shrine, I will likely play the other shrine. Blue shrine, I will sometimes play by itself if I'm specifically looking for 
a flyer to enable ninjas. Blue and white shrines together in blue-white are very good because uh, you have enough card selection to be good at finding both of them to assemble them together. The blue shrine is not that bad, and the white shrine is very good, and they play together in a good defensive way to let you take over the game with the white shrine. If you have those, or if you have multiple white shrines, and you have good fixing and good card selection, you could potentially splash shrines of other colors, but you should not prioritize doing that. If you have both a blue and a white shrine and you're feeling feisty and want to do it for fun, you can potentially go out of your way to prioritize getting other shrines, but I generally think that the winningest strategy is not to prioritize finding the shrines and finding the fixings to make a shrine deck work. I'm going to wrap it up there. Thanks for listening, everyone. We are fully in the swing of things in terms of letting patrons choose the topic for the next podcast. So there will be a poll up sometime this week. That, meaning something unknown at this point, is what we'll talk about next week. And I'll be back then. Bye for now.